This is false and defamatory, the impact of defamation and weaponized social media. Trigger warning. This podcast discusses topics related to emotional abuse, gaslighting, verbal abuse, threatening language, cyberbullying, intimidation tactics, and thoughts of self-harm which may be triggering for some listeners. The content includes descriptions of manipulative behavior, psychological distress, body shaming, online harassment, and other forms of abusive behavior and emotional trauma. Please take care of yourself and consider your mental and emotional state before listening. If you need support or someone to talk to, please seek help from a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. Thank you for listening. So we have made it to the day that the jury will deliberate and then render a verdict. The testimony is over and in the afternoon in the prior day, The attorneys and the judge were going over the court's charge and making changes to that and also in the morning before the jury arrived as well. And some of this is on the record. At 10 a.m. on Wednesday, August 24th, 2022, at the jury not present, the judge says, all right, y'all may be seated. We are going on the record. It's 10 a.m. on Wednesday, August 24th of 2022. We've had informal charge conferences and the court has arrived at what has now been distributed to everybody. And what we're going off of is marked copy that you have as opposed to the previous draft, which were marked working draft. So in its current form, let me hear from the plaintiff regarding your objections and requests on the charge. Elizabeth says, yes, your honor. At this time, we respectfully request or object and request that the court accept questions two and three that were submitted in our jury charge, and we will be tendering it to the court. We believe that questions two and three need to substantially lay out the multitude of statements that were made in this case, as there was not just one statement made and there was not just one post made. There were multiple posts over a period of time that included multiple defamatory statements that we believe the jury and that the PJC will require us to present to the the jury. Again, the PJC is a guide for jury charges. The judge says, all right, so for the record, and so I'm understanding correctly, what you're referring to is the 127-page plaintiff Crystal Wrighton's jury charge that you all filed on August 10th at 6.06 p.m. Is that correct? Elizabeth says, yes, your honor. And the judge says, and I note that you're requesting starting on page six and basically from page six to page 127, y'all have listed individual statements and you want yes or no for every one of those granulated statements. Is that correct? Elizabeth says yes, your honor, as well as a potential yes or no to whether each defendant made that defamatory statement. The judge says, all right, and you cite as the source there, PJC 110.5. It actually goes from page six to page 124. Do you know how many individual statements are on those? Elizabeth says, I believe there are 458, your honor. The judge says, okay, response from defense. Defendant's attorney says, first, I'd just submit, Your Honor, that as the court has noted previously in these proceedings, the court is required to use broad form by the Supreme Court wherever possible. The court has previously made a determination in this case that it is possible to use broad form submission to accomplish what needs to be accomplished in this case. And then thirdly, Your Honor, I would simply say that to try and incorporate that charge of 127 pages into what we've got at this time, given we had the charge conference yesterday, that was not raised yesterday. And so it's something that, although plaintiffs have apparently had the 
the opportunity to brief some portions of their argument concerning this issue. We certainly have not because we didn't have any idea that this was coming up. The judge says, all right, I'm going to deny the plaintiff's request and submit it in broad form the way we have it. So that request is denied. So at this point in time, Elizabeth and Sarah had been on the phone with my firm's appellate team because the rules clearly state that for defamation, each statement should have been in the jury charge. And so our appellate team was impressing the importance upon Elizabeth that we needed to have the jury charge include those statements, but the judge denied it. In fact, our appellate team had already drafted an appeal should this verdict had not gone our way because if there would have been any opportunities for appeal in this case, the only side that would have been able to appeal would have been my side, the plaintiff, because of this jury charge. So the judge is ruling, no, we are not including any of the statements. We're just including broad form and denied Elizabeth's request. Then he says, all right, any others? And Elizabeth says, yes, your honor. We also respectfully object to question number six, as it requires a unanimous answer to questions one, two, three, and four. The PJC does not require a unanimous answer to question one, two, three, and four. Specifically, question two does not require a unanimous answer from question one. Question three does not require a unanimous answer from question two. And question four does not require a unanimous answer from question three. The only predicate question that should be considered in the unanimous answer is question four for question number six. And the judge says, you said you object to question number six. You're not really objecting to question number six, are you? And Elizabeth said, I'm objecting to the instructions on question number six, your honor. The judge says, okay, you really don't want question number six, correct? Elizabeth says, yes. The judge says, okay, all right. My feeling is that in order for you to get to question number six, you have to get unanimous answers to one through four, because if I only condition it on number four, and then we have a unanimous answer to four, but we don't have unanimous answers to one, two, and three, I think we could have an internally inconsistent verdict that might be fatal to the verdict. So I'm going to go ahead and do it like we have there, and the instructions are going to stay the same, meaning you have to get unanimous yeses to one, two, three, and four in order for six to be submitted. So we'll leave it that way and that request is denied. So what they're talking about here is the charge of the court is requiring that all 12 unanimously agree to the questions one through four in order for them to be able to answer question six. And question six had to do with damages, which is monetary. And so Elizabeth was saying, well, even if it's not completely unanimous, the jury could still award damages. And so the judge is saying, no, that's denied. It all has to be completely unanimous, all 12 jurors in order to get to that point. Then the judge says, anything else? Elizabeth says, no, your honor. The judge says, okay, any objections or requests to the charge of the court from defendants? And defendant's attorney says, no, sir, your honor, we've had the opportunity to do that previously and appreciate that opportunity from the court. Then the judge says, all right, anything else before we bring the jury in? And Sarah says, your honor, just one change to the closing for the plaintiffs. I would ask for 25 in my opening closing and five for the rebuttal, please, sir. The judge says, all right, so you're going to want 25 minutes to open and five for your final summation. And Sarah says, yes, your honor. And the judge says, all right, and do you want any warning on those. And Sarah says, could I have a five minute warning on the 25, your honor, please. And then the judge says five minute warning. All right, then. And what Sarah and the judge are discussing here is during the closing statements, both sides have 30 minutes. And so Sarah is saying that she would like to take 25 minutes initially for her closing statement. And then the defense gets to go. And then the plaintiff has an opportunity for rebuttal. And so she is trying to split her time between the first time that she starts to give the closing statement and the rebuttal. So she wants 25 for the beginning 
warning and then five minutes for the rebuttal. And she has asked the judge to give her a five minute warning when she has been going for 20 minutes whenever she starts. And the judge says, all right, then, and defendant's attorney, you get 30 minutes. Do you need a warning on your 30 minutes? Defendant's attorney says, no, sir, judge. As I indicated to the court yesterday, I don't plan on using 30, but I'm not ceding my time to the lady on my right. He's referencing Sarah. And Sarah says, and I'm not asking for it, but thank you. The judge says, you never know. Once you get going, you might get up ahead of steam and go right through the 30 minutes. Okay, you don't need any warnings, though. And defendant's attorney says, no, sir. The judge says, okay. Sarah says, your honor, for the rebuttal, we will be engaging and using the computer. I don't know if you'd like to turn it on now. And then the judge says, let's make sure we can get to you so we don't fumble around with that, but not the Elmo. And Elizabeth says, correct. And Sarah says, no, sir. And as a reminder, the Elmo is a projection device. The judge says, okay, see if it comes up. So they work with that. And then the judge says, all right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to toggle back to the Elmo and it's on the same system. So all I have to do is just hit your computer whenever you request me to during your argument. Okay. And Elizabeth says, okay. The judge says, all right, anything else before we bring them in? And then the judge continues and says, all right, I think I need to give the court reporter a second. I think he has to put a different cover sheet on the original. So that's all we need. And then we'll get going. And then he says, all right, bring in the jury. And the jury is present. So the jury is present and the judge says, all right, everybody be seated, please. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. It is now time to read you the charge of the court. Once I read the charge of the court to you, the attorneys will give their final arguments and then you will retire to the jury room and the original of the charge will be placed on the table for you and for your use in returning the verdict. And at that time, when the original is placed on the table, then your deliberations formally begin. Cause number 96-321678-20, Crystal Wrighton Plaintiff versus Defendants, Charge of the Court. You do have a copy of this in front of you, but the law requires me to read it, so you're welcome to follow along. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, after the closing statements, you will go back to the jury room to decide the case, answer the questions that are attached, and reach a verdict. You may discuss the case with other jurors only when you are all together in the jury room. Remember my previous instructions. Do not discuss the case with anyone else, either in person or by any other means. Do not do independent investigation about the case or conduct any research. Do not look up any words in dictionaries or on the internet. Do not post information about the case on the internet. Do not share any special knowledge or experiences with other jurors. Do not use your phone or any other electronic device during your deliberations for any reason. Any notes you have taken are for your own personal use. You may take your notes back into the jury room and consult them during deliberations, but do not show or read your notes to your fellow jurors during your deliberations. Your notes are not evidence. Each of you should rely on your independent recollection of the evidence and not be influenced by the fact that another juror has or has not taken notes. You must leave your notes with the bailiff when you are not deliberating. The bailiff will give your notes to me promptly after collecting them from you, and I will make sure your notes are kept in a safe, secure location and not disclosed to anyone. After you complete your deliberations, the bailiff will collect your notes. When you are released from jury duty, the bailiff will promptly destroy your notes so that nobody can read what you wrote. Here are the instructions for answering the questions. Number one, do not let bias, prejudice, or sympathy play any part in your deliberations. Number two, base your answers only on the evidence admitted in court and on the law that is in these instructions and questions. Do not consider or discuss any evidence that was not admitted in the courtroom. Number three, you are to make up your own minds about the facts. You are the sole judges of the credibility of the witnesses and the weight to give their testimony. But on matters of law, you must follow all of 
of my instructions. Number four, if my instructions use a word in a way that is different from its ordinary meaning, use the meaning I give you, which will be a proper legal definition. Number five, all the questions and answers are important. No one should say that any question or answer is not important. Number six, answer yes or no to all the questions unless you are told otherwise. A yes answer must be based on a preponderance of the evidence. Whenever a question requires an answer other than yes or no, your answer must be based on a preponderance of the evidence. The term preponderance of the evidence means the greater weight of credible evidence presented in this case. If you do not find that a preponderance of the evidence supports a yes answer, then answer no. A preponderance of the evidence is not measured by the number of witnesses or by the number of documents admitted into evidence. For a fact to be proved by a preponderance of the evidence, you must find that the fact is more likely true than not true. A fact may be established by direct evidence or by circumstantial evidence or both. A fact is established by direct evidence when provided by documentary evidence or by witnesses who saw the act done or heard the words spoken. A fact is established by circumstantial evidence when it may be fairly and reasonably inferred from other facts provided. Number seven, do not decide who you think should win before you answer the questions and then just answer the questions to match your decision. Answer each question carefully without considering who will win. Do not discuss or consider the effect your answers will have. Number eight, do not answer questions by drawing straws or any method of chance. Number nine, some questions might ask you for a dollar amount. Do not agree in advance to decide on a dollar amount by adding up each juror's amount and then figuring the average. Number 10, do not trade your answers. For example, do not say, I'll answer the question your way if you answer the question another way. Number 11, answers to the questions must be based on the decision of at least 10 of the 12 jurors. The same 10 jurors must agree on every answer. Do not agree to be bound by the vote of anything less than 10 jurors, even if it would be a majority. As I've said before, if you do not follow these instructions, you will be guilty of misconduct and I might have to order a new trial and start this process over again. This would waste your time and the party's money and would require the taxpayers of this county to pay for another trial. If a juror breaks any of these rules, tell that person to stop and report it to me immediately. Definition. The Texas Civil Practices and Remedies Code at section 73.001 defines libel as a libel is a defamation expressed in written or other graphic form that tends to blacken the memory of the dead or that tends to injure a living person's reputation and thereby expose the person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or financial injury, or to impeach any person's honesty, integrity, virtue, or reputation, or to publish the natural defects of anyone and thereby expose the person to public hatred, ridicule, or financial injury. Question number one, do you find the defendants, either of them, publish statements pertaining to the plaintiff? Publish means intentionally or negligently to communicate to a person other than the plaintiff who is capable of understanding its meaning. Answer yes or no for each of the following, and then he lists both of the defendants. The defendant in her individual capacity and the defendant's business. If you answered yes to question one, then answer the following questions. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. So this means if they would have said no, then the rest of the questions would have been irrelevant. So you have to answer the question before in order to get to the question after. Question number two, were the statements in question one defamatory concerning the plaintiff? Defamatory means an ordinary person would interpret the statement in a way that tends to injure a living person's reputation 
reputation and thereby expose the person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or financial injury, or to impeach the person's honesty, integrity, virtue, or reputation. In deciding whether a statement is defamatory, you must construe the statement as a whole and in light of the surrounding circumstances based on how a person of ordinary intelligence would perceive it. Answer yes or no. If you've answered yes to question two, then answer the following question. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. Question number three. Were the statements false at the time they were made as it related to the plaintiff? False means that a statement is not substantially true. A statement is substantially true if it varies from the literal truth only in minor details or if, in the mind of the average person, the gist of the statement is no more damaging to the person affected by it than a literally true statement would have been. Answer yes or no. If you answered yes to question three, then answer the following question. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. Question number four. Did defendants, either of them, know or should they have known in the exercise of ordinary care that the published statements were false and had the potential to be defamatory. Ordinary care concerning the truth of the statement and its potential to be defamatory means that degree of care would be used by a person of ordinary prudence under the same or similar circumstances. Answer yes or no for each of the following. And again, the two defendants are listed in separate blanks. If you answer yes to question four, then answer the following question. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. Question number five. What sum of money, if paid now in cash, would fairly and reasonably compensate the plaintiff for her injuries, if any, that were proximately caused by the defendants, either of them? Consider the elements of damages listed below and none other. Consider each element separately. Do not award any sum of money on any element if you have otherwise under some element awarded a sum of money for the same loss. That is, do not compensate twice for the same loss, if any. Do not include interest on any amount of damages you find. Answer separately in dollars and cents for damages, if any. A. Injury to reputation sustained in the past. B. Injury to reputation that in reasonable probability plaintiff will sustain in the future. C. Mental anguish suffered in the past. D. Mental anguish that in reasonable probability plaintiff will suffer in the future. E. Medical care incurred in the past. F. Medical care that in reasonable probability will be incurred in the future. Answer the following question only if you've unanimously answered yes to questions 1, 2, 3, and 4. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. To answer yes to the following question, your answer must be unanimous. You may answer no to the following question only upon a vote of 10 or more jurors. Otherwise, you must not answer the following question. Question number 6. Do you find by clear and convincing evidence that at the time the defendants, either of them, published the libelous statements, one, defendants knew they were false as they related to plaintiff, or two, defendants made the statements with a high degree of awareness that they were probably false to an extent that defendants, in fact, had serious doubts to the truth of the statements. Clear and convincing evidence means that measure or degree of proof that will produce in the mind of the jury a firm belief or conviction as to the truth of the allegations sought to be established. Answer yes or no for each of the following. And there are answer blanks for the two defendants. Answer the following question only if you unanimously answered yes to question six. Otherwise, do not answer the following question. You must unanimously agree on the amount of any award of exemplary damages. Question number seven. What sum of money, if any, if paid now in cash, should be assessed against the defendants and awarded to plaintiff as exemplary damages, if any, for the conduct found in response to question six? Exemplary damages means an amount that you may, in your discretion, award as an example to others and as a penalty or by way of 
punishment. Factors to consider in awarding exemplary damages, if any, are A, the nature of the wrong, B, the character of the conduct involved, C, the degree of culpability of the wrongdoer, D, the situation and sensibilities of the parties concerned, E, the extent to which such conduct offends a public sense of justice and propriety, F, the net worth of the defendants, answer in dollars and cents, if any, as to the following. Then there are two blanks, one for each defendant. Number one, when you go into the jury room to answer the questions, the first thing you will need to do is choose a presiding juror. Number two, the presiding juror has these duties. A, have the complete charge read aloud if it will be helpful to your deliberations. B, preside over your deliberations, meaning manage the discussions and see that you follow these instructions. C, give written questions or comments to the bailiff. D, write down the answers you agree on. E, get the signatures for the verdict certificate, and F, notify the bailiff that you have reached a verdict. Do you understand the duties of the presiding juror? If not, please tell me now. Number one, you may answer the questions on the vote of 10 jurors. The same jurors must agree on every answer in the charge. This means that you may not have a group of 10 jurors agree on one answer and a different group of 10 jurors agreeing on another answer. Number two, if 10 jurors agree on every answer, those 10 jurors sign the verdict. If 11 jurors agree on every answer, those 11 jurors sign the verdict. If all 12 of you agree on every answer, you are unanimous and only the presiding juror signs the verdict. Number three, all jurors should deliberate on every question. You may end up with all 12 of you agreeing on some answers while only 10 or 11 of you agree on other answers. But when you sign the verdict, only those 10 who agree on every answer will sign the verdict. Number four, there are some special instructions before questions six and seven explaining how to answer those questions. Please follow the instructions. If all 12 of you answer those questions, you will need to complete a second verdict certificate for those questions. Questions. Do you understand these instructions? If not, please let me know. I am signing the original at 10.26 a.m. Now, the last two pages of the verdict form are the verdict certificates, and it's a little bit tricky, so I'm just going to go over this one more time, even though the instructions do a pretty good job of covering it. So with respect to questions one through five, those are covered by the preponderance of the evidence standard that is defined in the charge. And you may answer questions one through five either unanimously with all 12 of you or with 11 of the 12 or with 10 of the 12. If your answers to all of those are unanimous, then the presiding juror signs that the jury is unanimous. If it's 11 or 10 agreeing to all the answers 1 through 5, then each individual signs it. And you'll sign it on the left and print your name to the right if it's 11 or 12 that are in agreement to those answers. So those are the first section, and those are covered by the preponderance of the evidence standard. Now, only in the event that your answers to 1 through 5 are unanimous will you go on to 6 and 7. And 6 and 7, you'll notice in there, have a different burden of proof. It's clear and convincing standard, and that's defined in there for you. So if you have been unanimous on the first set of questions, then you can go on to six and seven, and a yes answer to six has to be unanimous. A no answer to six can be based on 10 or 11. Okay, so that's a little bit tricky. It has to be a yes answer to six and seven if your answer is a yes to question six. You can find no to question six based on either 10 or 11. Okay, but you only get to six and seven if one through five are unanimous. So that's a little bit tricky. So I want to take a moment to explain, you know, what the verdict forms say and why they say it. And the very last page would only be signed by the presiding juror if you have a unanimous yes to six and seven, okay?
All right. At this time, the parties will give their final arguments. We've given 30 minutes per side. The plaintiff with the burden of proof gets to open. Then the defendant will get final argument, and then the plaintiff will give a final summation. Miss Long, are you ready to proceed? And Sarah says, yes, your honor. The judge says, you may go ahead. And Sarah says, thank you, your honor. May it please the court, counsel. Ladies and gentlemen, you're probably going to get tired of me saying this, but I said it on Monday morning, and I'll say it again now. And you'll probably hear it from me again in the second part of my closing. Thank you. Thank you. Without your service over these past two days, this process does not work. And without you being here and taking time out of your, I can only assume your busy lives. I know mine is. I can't even imagine what you've had to put aside to sit here for two days and listen to this dispute, to this litigation, to this lawsuit that my client brought against the defendant in this matter. But I will tell you, we would not be here today, this week, over hurt feelings. I'll be very clear with you. If this were about hurt feelings, I would not be standing here in front of you. If this were about a squabble between two women, I wouldn't be standing here in front of you today. This lawsuit, this case is a case of defamation, a case where the defendant went on a campaign, a campaign to ruin my client, to ruin her reputation, to ruin her standing in the community, both the online community that the defendant was part of, in my clients, in her home, in the town that she lives in, in the church that she goes to. It was a campaign and an intent to destroy her reputation. So thank you. Thank you for your attentiveness. And this has been a hard almost two years for my client. And being back here has just been a continuation of what she has felt and what has been this ongoing campaign. So thank you for your attentiveness. We have done our best to put forth this evidence as efficiently as possible, and I hope you can see that. We did not want to waste your time here today. The judge has given you what's called the charge of the court. Again, as we talked when you were members of the general panel over here, this is not my charge. This is not the defendant's attorney's charge. This is the charge of the court, and these definitions come from there. I don't want to go over them again, as he's already done that for you, but there are a few instructions that I think are important important for you to really pay attention to when analyzing the evidence that's been put in front of you over the past couple of days. On page two, the first instruction says, number one, do not let bias, prejudice, or sympathy play any part in your deliberations. I emphasize sympathy. I don't know if you can see that. I've underlined sympathy because we heard that the defendant has had terrible things said about her online, awful things, and she told you about some of those yesterday, and I'm sorry for her. I hate that that has happened to her, but again, there is absolutely no evidence that it was my client. So I ask that you, you do not let that sympathy play any part in your deliberations. Although all of these definitions are very important, I am just going to point you to a few. Number three, you are to make up your own minds about the facts. Ladies and gentlemen, you are the sole judges of credibility of the witnesses and the weight to give their testimony, the credibility of the witnesses. And finally, in the second paragraph of number six, it talks about the term preponderance of the evidence. And that's the first standard that you will be weighing in the question. The first questions you're asked, and that's preponderance of the evidence. And we talked about it's not a criminal matter where it's beyond a reasonable doubt, it's moving those scales. If you could just see the scales of justice, it's moving that just to 51%. That is a preponderance of the evidence, and it means the greater weight of credible evidence. Another word for credible evidence is believable evidence. So ladies and gentlemen, let's talk about what credible and believable evidence is. November 13th, 2020, that was the day that changed everything for Crystal Wrighton. That was the day that changed everything for Crystal Wrighton and her family. 
family. Crystal, as she told you, got to know the defendant by chance at a Chi Omega Christmas market. My client says that it occurred sometime in the fall of 2015, where she, when looking back in her memory, believed it happened in her life. Based upon her kids' ages and what she was doing, where she was working, she believes that it was the fall of 2015. The defendant believes it was the year before in the fall of 2014. But both of the witnesses, both parties, my client and the defendant said that it was a chance meeting. It just so happened that their booths were near each other at this Chi Omega market. I've been to this Chi Omega market. It is huge. It's enormous. The fact that they were just placed by each other is by chance. And so you heard both of them say that the defendant came into my client's booth to talk to her, to get away from the customers to take a break. They both told you that. Their stories differ from there. My client, Miss Frighten, Crystal, told you that she remembered defendant's company and after that meeting, that chance meeting at the Chi Omega Christmas market in the fall of what she believes is 2015, she looked into the company and found a clothing line that fit her. She had been searching for years for something that could fit her body size and her body type and she found it. And then she began buying from the company. I think she even joked on the stand that she didn't want to talk about how much she had spent because her husband was sitting in here. She believed in this brand. I think her words were the clothes empowered her. And so she continued. Even the defendant said she would come into the warehouse. She says she would pick up clothes. They had birthday parties for the business and my client would attend these things. And it was through that connection that she ultimately was offered a job at the business in the spring of 2019. She went through an interviewing process and she was hired. And then she worked for the defendant from the spring, April or May of 2019 until my client resigned in September of 2020. Nothing happened between the two women. My client made a life decision that was best for her, that was best for her family. And she decided to walk away from her employment at defendant's business. Even the defendant on the stand said that she was caught off guard. She was surprised when she left because there was nothing brewing. There was nothing building. My client just walked away. In fact, she said she sent a text saying, is everything okay to my client, to Miss Wrighton? And then November 13th, my client gets communication from a friend asking if she's seen this post and what is going on. And that's when she sees, my client sees for the first time that her former boss, someone she considered a friend, the defendant, has started a Facebook post. What we now know is a campaign against my client. The post stated that the defendant accused my client of creating fake profiles, of stalking her, of stealing text messages and deleting text messages, of going into her iCloud account unauthorized. She accused her of all these things in this very first post. She accused her in these nine plus profiles of saying awful and hateful things about the defendant that my client said those things. The defendant didn't just say this to her spouse. She didn't just say this to her best friend. She said this to her followers, her 20,000 plus followers, women who she calls her internet friends, women who call themselves her army, people who follow her, people who the defendant has told you she wants them to believe what she tells them, what she believes is her truth. She wants them to believe it. So she goes on this website and starts saying awful, hurtful, terrible things about my client. My client got in front of you yesterday and Monday and told you that before she began working for the defendant, she had never heard of this GOMI where these hate blogs were able to go forward. She never even heard of it. And the only reason she learned of GOMI was from the defendant. She never posted on GOMI. She never posted on Reddit. She was very clear that she was worried she might have even created a Reddit account. She wanted to make sure that you understood that, that she's never posted on any of these hate-filled accounts. And this very first post, the defendant said that 90% of the posts were the same person. And be clear, in this post, she names my client, doesn't reference her. It's not through innuendo. 
It's not through assumption. She says Crystal Wrighton's name. She says it. She says that she stalked her for several years, that Crystal Wrighton came into her business to destroy it and then brag about it on the internet. She deleted incriminating things, my client, every single text deleted. It's on that same post that she brings Crystal's daughter into it. She talks about Crystal's daughter. She waits a few days. During this time, she's still posting. In the interest of not keeping you here for days upon days, we didn't bring you every post live, but what we did bring is a listing of every single post that will be back there with you. It's in the retraction letters. And every time that the defendant posted something about my client, we had to go online and then we had to ask for her to retract it. And you'll see a series of those letters, eight of them, that went to the defendant throughout this litigation. And you'll have those. But what we have brought for you via the exhibits are the next posts on December 15th. And it's actually a verbal Instagram where she types my client's name on the screen and we showed it to you. You'll be able to see it in your deliberations. As she is talking about the vibe the awful, hurtful things that my client has done. She's got her name written, posted the entire time she is speaking. She says that my client, Crystal, was terrorizing her. We then go just a couple of days later to November 17th, 2020. This is another Facebook post. And what's important, it says defendant is at the defendant's business. So she's not just doing this as the defendant in her personal capacity. She's doing this as the owner of defendant's company, giving this information, not just to her followers, not just to those ones that follow the defendant or her business, she's also doing this for the customers. She is providing this information to another set of people, those that follow the defendant and her business, those customers. In this Facebook post, she talks about how my client is stalking her, how she was crazy. She even brings in my client's husband and mentions him. How can he condone this? How can he put up with this? And ladies and gentlemen, this is where it goes from social media. Those first Facebook posts, she tags people. You can only tag 100 people. She tags 98 and then adds more in the first post. But in this November 17th, 2020 post, she names Crystal's church. Again, says Crystal's name in the post and names her church. She goes to my church's name. And in that post, which will be back there with you, she names her church and then asks if everybody knows about who Crystal is. That one, she tagged 98 people and then named others in the post too, to quote unquote, warn them about my client, warn them about Crystal Wrighton and all the awful, terrible, untruthful things that she is saying my client is doing. Now, defendant got on the stand yesterday and said that when people started saying ugly, hurtful, threatening things about my client, that she shut them down, that she told them, no, do not do that. Ladies and gentlemen, you have these posts. You will be able to see what the defendant said and what her followers said, her internet friends, her army, as they call themselves. And when they said horrible things about my client, that they would go find her and harm her, that they wanted to know where she lived. When they posted a picture of her where they cut out her son, the defendant knew what she was doing. And not once did she tell them when they threatened my client, when they said horrible things about my client, not once did she tell them to stop. Instead, as you will see, it's in the evidence, she engages with them. She doubles down with them. She incites them on the horrible, awful, threatening things that they say about my client. But what's interesting in November, this November 17th post is she mentions that she shared all of this with the police, including her allegation that my client has said she knows where to bury a body. She says, I told that to the police. And in fact, she did go to the police. The defendant went to the police on November 6th of 2020. And that time she accused and claimed and asked for an investigation into my client for stalking, for cyber stalking and for harassment. And she tried to tell you yesterday that the police said that there wasn't anything they could do, but she agreed that there was a couple hundred page investigation 
information file from the police. She even said that they believed me, they believed me. Ladies and gentlemen, there was nothing keeping her from calling that police officer, the policewoman that she talked to. There was nothing keeping her from bringing you the evidence in that police file that she says shows that my client was the one behind those nine plus. She increases it over time to even more than nine plus, but the profiles that she says, she didn't bring you anything. There's not one statement. There's not one piece of evidence. There's nothing that indicates that the police ever believed that a crime had been committed. In fact, in evidence, I asked her understanding of the police's findings, the Bartonville Police Department, and that was that the police found that there were no crimes committed. No crimes committed. That is what the police report said. The one that I talked to her about, and she knew that. It was communicated to her. And she's tried to say that it was because there wasn't enough evidence. But ladies and gentlemen, there were 200 pages of evidence. None of that was brought to you. They never brought the police up here to say, yes, I absolutely believe her that it was Crystal Wrighton who was making these posts. No evidence. And she was told by the Bartonville Police Department that no crimes were committed by Crystal Wrighton. So on December 27, 2020, what does the defendant do? She goes back this time to her business Facebook page. So now it's not just that the defendant individually is at her business where her business is part of her name. She literally posts from the business Facebook page a few weeks after she has been told no crimes committed. And she continues to post about Crystal. This time she says that for seven years, my client had been fixated on her since 2013. She calls her single white female crazy and she's already instigated. She knows that there's been litigation in this matter, and she says it's not slander if it's true. She also says she'll show the surveillance where she has Crystal, my client, typing on one of those hate-filled websites. There is no evidence of this. She tells you that she's going to bring something and doesn't bring anything. She told you yesterday on the stand that there are 1,700 pages that are filled with my client, Crystal Wrighton's blog posts, hate-filled posts. Those nine, 10 plus posters that she says were all my client's fake accounts, different accounts, all of those were from my client. And she'd said that 90% of those 1,700 pages was filled with my client's hate-filled posts. None of them are here today. Even the ones she tried to tell you about yesterday where she says that the posts had things that only my client knew. Where are those posts? If she is so sure that those are the work of my client, why wouldn't she bring those to you? None of it is here today. She has said that my client's motive, beginning in either 2012 or 2013, before my client knew the defendant, before my client even knew that the defendant's business as a clothing boutique existed that she began making these hate-filled posts so Crystal would ensure that the defendant would stop posting, that she would stop making money, and that she would lose her brand new home. My client talked to you a little bit about her family, and she has two sons, a daughter, and a granddaughter. Take you back to 2012 and 2013. At that time, Crystal had a two-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a 12-year-old, yet she, according to the defendant, began a campaign against the defendant, began hateful posts to ensure that the defendant stopped making money and would lose her home. What is credible and what is believable? After my client was made aware of the posts, she engaged my firm to assist her because it was clear that this campaign against her was continuing. As I mentioned earlier, and as was discussed in the trial of this matter, she was sent eight retraction letters, eight of them, detailing each and every defamatory statement, true statement, hurtful statement, harmful statement that she made about my client. After those retraction letters were sent and after the police tells her that no crimes have been committed, she continues to post. In fact, when she posts, she doubles down and says she's going to be telling her truth. She says, it's my truth. But ladies and gentlemen, her truth 
isn't the truth. The truth was brought to you during the trial of this matter. The truth was brought to you when my client said she has never posted on these sites, that she did not begin posting in 2012 and 2013. She didn't even know the defendant until the fall of 2015. In February of 2021, knowing that she had these 20,000 followers, she continues this campaign. Suit has been filed, retraction letters have been sent, and she continues to tell her story, her truth. At this point, the judge says, you've used 20 minutes. Sarah says, thank you, your honor. And then she continues. She starts getting uglier and nastier. She calls her names. When she says things on her Instagram post, she says, send another letter or tell the judge to tell her to stop talking. Ladies and gentlemen, you get to be the ones to tell her to stop talking today. She calls my client names. She continues to make a mockery of this process. She didn't do that yesterday on the stand, but she did it in her videos. She did it in almost two years leading up to this. She has said that she is going to keep posting. She has said she's going to keep making these continued accusations, untrue accusations, false and harmful accusations against my client. Before I hand over the closing to defendant's counsel, I do want to go through the charge in a little bit greater detail. And your honor, I said I wasn't going to use the Elmo, but I believe I will if that's okay. And the judge says the Elmo and Sarah says, thank you, your honor. The first question is, and at this point, Sarah puts the charge of the court on the Elmo as she is talking the jury through this. And she says, the first question is, do you find the defendants, either of them, published statements pertaining to the plaintiff? And published means intentionally or negligently to communicate to a person other than the plaintiff who is capable of understanding. And for both of them, ladies and gentlemen, that is a yes. And at this point, Sarah writes yes on the blanks. And that is on the screen for the jury. She continues, there is no question that the defendant published statements pertaining to the plaintiff. What's a little bit harder is whether or not the business did, but public corporations, LLCs, they speak through their representatives. Defendant is her business. Therefore, she was speaking on behalf of them. Defamatory. Were the statements in question more defamatory concerning the plaintiff? And that is, an ordinary person would interpret the statement in a way that tends to injure a living person's reputation and thereby expose the person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or financial injury, or to impeach the person's honesty, integrity, virtue, or reputation. The defendant did that to my client in every single post. 358 posts over an almost two-year period, 105 Facebook posts or Instagram live videos. The answer is very clear that it is a yes. And again, she writes that on the paper. She continues, were the statements false? Yes. False means that a statement is not substantially true. A statement is substantially true if it varies from the literal truth only in minor details, or if, in the mind of an average person, the gist of the statement is no more damaging to the person affected than a literally true statement would have been. She was told there were no crimes committed. My client told her she didn't do any of that. She has brought you zero evidence forth today that any of what she was saying about my client is true or believable. And should they have known in this exercise of ordinary care that they were false? The answer for both is absolutely. And again, she writes yes on the paper. She continues, now, this is the hard part, putting numbers. I know that we had discussed this in our general panel and that you agreed that you would be able to follow the judge's instructions and, if given instructions, you could award damages for this. Injury to reputation sustained in the past. Miss Wrighton got up here and told you that she lost a job opportunity to the tune of $90,000, that she would have gotten that job had it not been for the posts. And so I believe that alone shows you, and you also have the ability to add on to that because it wasn't just losing the job. It was the fear. 
It was going into the grocery store, into Costco, into her nail salon. She was worried, her church, what people knew, what they thought, all because of the defendant. Injury to reputation in the future. The defendant has said she's not going to stop. Watch her posts, read her posts, listen to the words that she says when she's not sitting in that chair. She's not going to stop unless you make her. Mental anguish suffered in the past. Again, these are all up to you, and I believe that number should be 50,000. You heard anguish. You heard what Miss Wrighton said, what her husband said, and what her therapist said. And I believe that unless the defendant stops, it will continue into the future. Medical care. You have bills. You heard her therapist's testimony. This affected my client to the point that she needed to seek medical treatment. They'll try to tell you that she had high blood pressure, but the records show that it skyrocketed and her therapist said she would continue to need additional treatment. You'll then be asked if the defendants knew that the statements they made were false as to the plaintiff or if they made the statements with a high degree of awareness that they were probably false. And the answer for both is clearly yes. Watch her videos, read her statements, see what she says. And this is where you get to tell the defendant that she cannot do that, that it is not right for her to do that. I ask that you make it 100000 for the business. And for the defendant, that number is up to you. What will make her stop? You can't tell her to stop. It has to be a number. I've thrown out some high numbers, but ladies and gentlemen, this has to stop today. Is it 100,000? Is it 250,000? Is it more? I don't know, but it has to stop today. Thank you, Your Honor. And the judge says, thank you, Ms. Long. And then he says, defendant's attorney for the defense. Defendant's attorney says, may we approach your honor? And then the judge says, yes. And they have a discussion. The judge says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, with respect to arguments of counsel, I'm instructing you to disregard any reference to any witness who was not called to testify. Any reference to that or consideration by you would be improper. It would involve speculation on what any witness who wasn't called to testify may or may not have testified to. So I will instruct you to disregard any of counsel's argument that refers to that. And what the judge is referring to here and the defense his attorney had brought this to the judge's attention is when Sarah said that they could have called the Bartonville police officer to testify, but they didn't. So the judge is saying you need to disregard that part of the closing statement because we can't speculate what that officer might or might not have said. Then the judge says, all right, and gives it to the defendant's attorney. And defendant's attorney says, may it please the court, counsel, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you get another thank you. I appreciate you all being here today to take part in this uniquely American process. Again, as counsel for the plaintiffs have indicated to you, without you, this whole thing falls apart. It doesn't work. I'd like to talk a few minutes, a few minutes about what we've been exposed to here over the course of the past few days. We've seen evidence that the plaintiff used to work for the defendant. You've seen a lot of video clips, a lot of comments over the last two days. So what I'm going to cover here with respect to this list is not intended to be all-inclusive. There's probably some of this testimony that you've seen or heard that resonates with you particularly that I don't have on my list, and I hope you won't hold that against me. This is just me hitting the high points on the notes that I've taken over the last couple of days. And I just want to say, we've seen that the plaintiff, she left work of the defendant's company, and she did so because she thought she was underpaid and overworked. Plaintiff and the defendant left each other alone for about two months after that. And then we have the defendant going to the police to make a complaint and the defendant posting. We have the plaintiff then beginning her therapy on the same day that she had the defendant served with process in this case. I'm going to pause here once again. The defendant really harps on this, that I started therapy on the same day that she was served, but neither of those events had anything to do with 
the other. Defendant's attorney goes on to say, and we have a lot of posts and videos, the sum and substance of which my client has testified she believed were true when she posted them. And not only that, but she testified as to what her rationale was for that belief. She explained that. Then we also have some testimony from the plaintiff and her husband that none of their fears None of their concerns regarding any confrontation, any disruption, any home invasions, none of these things happened or have happened over the course of the past 20 months. Plaintiff is asking you guys for a lot of money damages in this case. You just saw the list. She wrote down a number on every single blank. In particular, she wrote down a number for the loss of a job that the plaintiff claims that she missed out on. And plaintiff testified that nobody at that company ever told her she lost that job because of any posts. That's a coincidence maybe, but that's not evidence she lost a job over any post. It's simply not. Plaintiff is also asking you guys to award money for damage to the reputation, her reputation past and future, medical bills past and future, mental anguish past and future, all over some Facebook and Instagram post, the result of which wound up being nothing with respect to any actual confrontation with any person. I almost forgot this too. We heard the plaintiff testify with respect to a lot of the posts, not the first post, but a lot of the posts. She didn't even know about them until she received them from her own legal team. Now you can look at me. You can look at my face. You can look at the mileage here. You can tell I'm not a Gen Zer. I'm not a Gen Xer. I'm not a millennial. I'm a dreaded baby boomer. I don't have a big social media profile or following at all. I've got a Facebook account my wife set up for me so I could get pictures of my son and my daughter when she posts them. But let's presume for a second that I was Johnny on the spot with social media and I posted about a former law partner of mine, just ripped him up one side and down the other. And he found out about these posts and he went to a law firm and told the law firm, this guy, he is ruining me. He is saying all of these horrible things about me. We're going to call him my law partner, Eddie Haskell. And Eddie is just livid. He's really, really mad about these posts. I wonder if the law firm he goes to is going to take the case. I really hope not. I really hope not, because if there's been 20 months worth of time period between the time that Eddie found out about the post and the time that he gets in front of a law firm that he's asking to help him out, I hope the law firm says to him, I'm sorry, Eddie, but your fears and your concerns about being accosted over having a confrontation, these fears and concerns are unfounded. They've got no basis. It hasn't happened over the course of 20 months. He is referencing here the litigation has taken 20 months, and I just want to point out the only reason, number one, that the litigation has taken 20 months is because solely of the defendant's delays. Secondly, what he's saying really doesn't resonate here because when I took action on these posts, it was immediate. But he's saying that if nothing has happened over 20 months, then nobody should do anything about it. He goes on to say, do people see these things on the internet and react to them? Do they do crazy things because they saw something on the internet? You bet it happens. Has it happened in this case? No, it has not. Now, the plaintiff has also requested exemplary damages in this case. Counsel asked you to consider 100,000 and then said, is it 100,000 or is it 200,000 or is it even more? You've been instructed by the judge what this means. So when you consider this question, I want you to please recall the interaction between plaintiff's counsel and my client yesterday where my client testified in an emotional fashion. It was in some ways difficult to turn away from. It was raw, and she testified that she never posted anything that she knew was wrong or false. She testified that she never posted with an intent to hurt the plaintiff. She testified that she never posted with any intent to ruin the plaintiff, and she testified that she never posted anything she did not believe was true. And yes, as counsel indicated to you, she's talking about her truth, but I want you to consider that from her perspective. Medical malpractice, breach of contract, wrongful death. 
These are the weighty, I said this before, objectively important matters that form the foundation for district court proceedings like the one we're here for the last couple of days. Now, plaintiff's counsel has told you that every single post was defamatory, but when you see a post that says, and I want you to look at these, these eight retraction letters that she's talked about, some of those things that they wanted retracted was, she posted something mean about me. She posted something hateful about me. She posted something that hurt my feelings. She called me a troll. These are not defamatory statements. If you say something about somebody that's hurtful, if you say something about somebody that is mean, that's not a defamatory statement. It's not something that deserves to be compensated. So when you go back to that room and you consider the plaintiff's claims, I'm asking you to please consider what the plaintiff's counsel has attempted to tell you. Recognize what really took place and return a verdict in favor of the defendant and against the plaintiff. Thank you. And yes, in favor of the defendant and against the plaintiff. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you listening to me. And the judge says, thank you, defendant's attorney. Then the judge says to Sarah that she has three minutes in rebuttal. And Sarah says, thank you, Your Honor. Could we switch to the computer, please? May it please the court and counsel. Ladies and gentlemen, the definition of defamatory, a statement that tends to injure a living person's reputation and thereby expose that person to public hatred, contempt, or ridicule, or financial injury, or to impeach the person's honesty, integrity, virtue, or reputation. These aren't just hurtful words that she was saying. Stalking, cyberstalking, harassment, theft, invasion of privacy, extortion, lies, betrayal, blackmail, deceit, sabotage. Those aren't my words. Those are the words used by the defendant in telling her 20,000 plus followers, her community, her internet friends, people who knew Crystal on social media, the people who knew Crystal in real life, those words. These are the people that Crystal and her family live with, they go to school with, they go to church with. These statements were defamatory. And I ask that you, you tell the defendant that she has to stop. She has to stop. And the only way she will stop is through you awarding monetary damages that tells her that she has to, that tells her that she cannot continue her campaign against my client. Ladies and gentlemen, they did not bring you one piece of evidence today, not one that proves that any of those posts are my client, none. And I ask you to remember this as you go back into the jury room. These are the words of the defendant. This is her path. This is what she plans on continuing to do to my client. And I just want you to know that everybody, everybody truly knows they do. So when you walk in that nail salon and you look around and you're like, oh my God, did they know? Did they know what I did? Did they know? Do they like when you walk to the, when you go to Sam's Club or Costco is really my shit. When you go to Costco and you see that girl with the logo medallion on her shirt and it makes you feel weird in your stomach, like, oh my God, does she know what she did? She, does she know what I did? She knows. And she doesn't like it either. She wouldn't still be wearing that shirt right now if she liked what he did. I would never wish that on anybody. But I wish that on you. After the video, Sarah said, thank you, Your Honor. And that was the end of Sarah's closing statement. And the judge says, all right, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, you have now heard all the evidence, the court's charge, and the arguments of counsel. You have been on our schedule up until this point, and now we're going to be on your schedule. You will determine if you want to take breaks, if you want to take a lunch, and for how long. The only thing I ask is that you let the bailiff know since, well, it's 11.15. If you're planning to take a lunch, just let the bailiff know for how long. And the reason for that is we have to be available to you while you're deliberating. 
meeting. So we'll be on your schedule and we'll take the breaks that y'all take. So that's the reason for that. So as soon as the bailiff places the original of the court's charge on the table in the jury room, your deliberations officially begin. You can now retire to the jury room. Thank you. And the jury leaves and the judge says, all right, thank y'all. Very well argued. Appreciate your professionalism and hang around until we find out what schedule they're on. We are off the record. Thank you. So at this point in time, everything has been done and the jury has started deliberating. And so I, along with my husband, my mom, my daughter, my mom's best friend, Elizabeth and Sarah, we go into our conference room and we're just kind of sitting there. There's nothing for us to do. And at some point they did come in and say that the jury is going to take a lunch. And so we did go out to lunch and I know that I ordered food, but I honestly can't tell you if I ate it or not, but it was nice to at least know that everything was out there. And at this point it was in the jury's hands. And so after that lunch, we did go back and then my mom, my husband, my daughter, and my mom's best friend and I sat in the conference room. When we went back, Sarah and Elizabeth actually went and sat in the courtroom to wait for the jury just in case there was anything going on. But myself and my family, we were just in the conference room, not really knowing what was going on. Meanwhile, at 2.50 p.m., the judge says, bring them in, and the jury is seated, and he says, all right, everybody be seated, please. He says to the court reporter, let's go on the record in cause number 96-321678-20, and the record will reflect that the jury has returned to the courtroom. It is 2.50 p.m. Ladies and gentlemen, I've received your two notes. The first one I responded to, where you were inquiring about what was contained on the USB drive, specifically exhibits 63, 90, 91, and 94, and I responded to that, identifying those in giving the dates and the account that they were from. I did that at 12.17 p.m. Your next note at 2.33 said, we would like to view the USB drives. Can we get a laptop or something to view them? And it's signed by our presiding juror. Unfortunately, we don't have AV equipment for the jury room, but we do here in the courtroom. So since you would like to view those and they are in evidence, we will play those for you to view. And that's all we're going to do. I've instructed the attorneys we're not reopening the evidence. These are already in evidence and nobody's going to say anything in this hearing except for me. I do want to point out I was not in the courtroom for this. It was just the attorneys, the judge, and the jury. The judge goes on to say, so we're not reopening any of the evidence or any arguments or anything like that. We're just strictly back in the courtroom to fulfill your request and show you those two things. So I will identify each one, play the clip for you, and then return you to the jury room. And then he goes through all of the videos for the jury and they watch them. So once those videos were all played for the jury, they went back into the jury room and they were in there again from 3.05 p.m. to 4.10 p.m. So around 4 p.m., Elizabeth came in the room and said, verdict is in, let's go. And the entire time of us sitting back there, was very nerve-wracking, excruciating, but also I had anxiety, I had anticipation, I was nervous, but also I was oddly calm. It was like there's there's nothing you can do. It's almost like Dr. Lee's worry boxes was something that I was able to employ during that time because there was nothing that I could do but wait. And so that's what we did. And so when Elizabeth came in and said the verdict is in, I don't even know if my heart was still beating. We just got up and we went into the courtroom to hear what the jury had to say. The bailiff says, all rise. The judge says, all right, thank you very much. The jury is in now. And he says, everyone be seated. And then he says to juror number one, 
you are the presiding juror. Is that correct? And he says, that is correct. The judge says, and the jury has reached a unanimous verdict. Is that correct? And the presiding juror says, we have. The judge says to the court reporter, we are on the record in cause number 96-321-678-20. The jury has returned its verdict form in this case. It is 4.10 p.m. and the jury has answered the court's question as follows. I would also like to say here that when we went back into the courtroom to hear the jury verdict, we were told, you do not react, period, the end. Do not react at all in any way, shape, or form. And I knew that I wasn't reacting and I was trying to control my facial expressions, but I did wonder what the facial expressions of my mom and my daughter were at that time. But we were told, do not react, do not make a sound. Question number one, as to the defendant in her personal capacity, the answer is yes. And I just want to pause again here because as soon as the first yes came, I can't even describe it. It was like after two years, finally being able to present the evidence, finally the jury had seen it and saw the truth and they were ruling in favor of the truth. And it didn't even matter to me what the rest of it said. All I needed was that yes, yes, yes. Goes on to say, and as to the business and the answer is yes. Question two. The answer is yes. Question number three, the answer is yes. Question number four, with respect to defendant in her personal capacity, the answer is yes. And with respect to the business, the answer is yes. Question number five, the damages in question, the answers are as follows. A, injury to reputation sustained in the past, $20,000. B, injury to reputation that in reasonable probability plaintiff will sustain in the future, $20,000. I want to pause here, and I don't know this for sure, but you have heard the testimony in this case, and oftentimes Sarah and the defendant would talk about, and Elizabeth would talk about the defendant's following being 20,000, more than 20,000. So I believe that the jury used that as the measurement for this dollar amount for injury to my reputation in the past and the future. C, mental anguish suffered in the past, $33,000. I want to pause here. The video that the jury was shown, the last video that was shown to them in Sarah's closing statements, that video had 33,000 views. Again, I don't know this for sure, but I believe that the jury used that as the metric for this number. D, Mental anguish that in reasonable probability plaintiff will suffer in the future, $12,000. E, medical care incurred in the past, $10,500. That's the total of my therapy bills. F, medical care that in reasonable probability will be incurred in the future, $1,000. Question number eight, the answer with respect to the defendant in her individual capacity is yes. With respect to the business, the answer is yes. Question number seven on the damages. And question number seven is on exemplary damages, or they're also sometimes called punitive damages. Those sorts of damages are meant to punish and send a message to the severity of the conduct of the defendant. Question number seven on damages for the business, the answer is $50,000. And with respect to the defendant in her personal capacity is $100,000. I would just like to draw the conclusion here that. I believe the jury was sending a very clear message to the defendant in her personal capacity that her conduct is unacceptable and they weighted her punitive damages double what the business was. The judge says, is this your verdict? And the presiding juror says, yes, sir. 
while these numbers were being read, Sarah was writing them down with her right hand, but with her left hand, she grabbed my hand and held my hand throughout the reading of the final verdict. And once again, I'm trying not to react. I have never focused so hard on my facial expressions <laughs> as I have in that moment. Then the judge says, all right, do we have any motions from either party? Elizabeth says, no motions from the plaintiff, Your Honor. The defendant's attorney says, Your Honor, I would request initially that the jury be polled. And this is a common motion. So the defendant's attorney is just asking, can you please ask the jurors if they were all unanimous? And so the judge says, all right, a polling of the jury has been requested, which is a matter of right. I note also for the record that the presiding juror has signed the verdict form and certified that the verdict was unanimous on page 13. The presiding juror signed the verdict for all the jurors as being unanimous. Is that correct? And the presiding juror says that is correct, Your Honor. And the judge says, and I also note on page 14 the additional certificate with respect to questions 6 and 7. You have likewise signed the additional certificate that the answers to 6 and 7 were also unanimous. Is that correct? And the presiding juror says, that is correct, Your Honor. So every single question in the jury charge was unanimous. So there was all this back and forth about how certain questions could be considered unanimous if it was 10, but all 10 of the jurors had to answer on all the questions. And the jury said, basically, none of that matters. We are all 100% in favor of this verdict. Then the judge says, all right, the question to you is, I've already asked the presiding juror, so the question to you will be whether the verdict as we have recited it was, in fact, your unanimous verdict. So juror number two, and she says yes. Juror number three, and he says yes. Juror number four, she says yes. Juror number five, and she says yes. Juror number six, and she says yes. Juror number seven, and he says yes. Juror number eight, and she says yes. Juror number nine, and he says yes. Juror number 10, and she says yes. Juror number 11, and she says yes. And juror number 12, and she says yes. In total, the jury had awarded $246,500. $150,000 were punitive or exemplary damages. And 96,500 were considered actual damages. That was from the list of damage to reputation in the past and the future, medical bills in the past and future. So 96,500 in actual damages and $150,000 as a punishment for the defendant's conduct. 50,000 for the business and 100,000 for the defendant in her personal capacity. The judge says, okay, all right. Any further motions from either of the parties? Elizabeth said, none from the plaintiff, your honor. And the defendant's attorney says, judge, I would request a judgment notwithstanding. A judgment notwithstanding is a judgment by the trial judge after a jury has issued a verdict, setting aside the jury's verdict and entering a judgment in favor of the losing party without a new trial. So here the defendant's attorney is saying, can we please disregard that and you just rule in our favor? And the judge says, okay, we'll take that up. We can take that up after we've dismissed the jury panel. And then he says, any other matters to take up before we dismiss the jury? Elizabeth says, no, your honor. And so then the judge says, ladies and gentlemen, I have told you before that you may not discuss this case with anybody else other than the other jurors in the jury room. I now release you from jury duty. 
You may discuss the case with anyone, but you may also choose not to discuss the case. That is your right. After your release from jury duty, the lawyers and others may ask you questions to see if the jury followed the instructions, and they may ask you to give a sworn statement. You are free to discuss the case with them and to give a sworn statement, but you may choose not to discuss the case and not to give a sworn statement. That is your right. I just want to put in one plug for the attorneys, and it doesn't have to necessarily be today. I know we have already taken up three days with this trial, and we very much appreciate the time that you've dedicated and the attention that you've put into this and your hard work. If you want to hang around for a little bit and discuss the case with the attorneys, you may do so. You can also, we're now free to talk about it. So you can call them, they can call you. Sometimes that's even a little bit, you know, after a week or two weeks, kind of the dust has settled and you're able to kind of reflect on your jury duty. I will put in a plug for them though, because I have been at both of these tables. And I will tell you that every case that comes into an attorney's office, we evaluate the case and we say, what is the jury going to do with these facts? Or how is this fact going to be viewed? How is this witness going to be perceived? We as litigators pay a lot of money to mediators. Mediation is a great business to be in where you try to get the case settled short of a jury trial. And I will tell you that all we talk about in mediation is what is a jury going to do? No, I disagree with you. The jury isn't going to believe that factor. Yes, the jury is going to like this witness. Or here is how this type of testimony is going to be perceived by this hypothetical jury that we all have in our minds. And so this process is the focal point of everything we do. And even more specifically, the work that you did how the case was perceived by you. So I just want to put a plug in for them. If they call you in a couple of weeks, they're not trying to bug you or change your mind or anything like that, but they really will be sincerely in search of information and trying to find out how those kinds of things and what you thought about the facts of the case. So let me just put in a plug for them because it's a very, very important information when you're a litigator. And I know when I was in their shoes, I really did appreciate it if folks would talk to me after the trial. So like I say, it doesn't have to be today. It can be down the road a little bit, but if they call you up, you might want to think about giving them a few minutes. So you are dismissed from jury duty. We very much appreciate your time. And the jury leaves. And then the judge says, all right, let the record reflect. It is 4.17 p.m. and the jury has exited. Is there anything else to take up before we go off the record? Defendant's attorney says, just defendant's motion for judgment notwithstanding, your honor. And the judge says, all right, motion denied. Thank you. Anything else? We're adjourned. So it's over. And like I've said before, this was never about the money. The lawsuit was filed to try and get the defendant to stop, and she would not. She would not stop. So as soon as that first yes came in, I had all I needed. The dollar amounts did not really matter to me because I had that verdict that the jury, and that it was unanimous, that she lied. She lied about all of it. And that is what I needed. That is what I wanted. That is what As my therapist says, that began my healing process because now all of those people still live around me, or most of them do. And now I have that jury verdict in my hands so that if anyone who has heard this nonsense ever asks me about it or it ever comes up, all I have to do is produce that document. And that jury verdict is precious to me. It really is. When the trial was over, the defendant walked out alone. She did not look happy. We stayed for a little bit and the court reporter gave me my own personal hard copy of the verdict. And once I had that in my hands, I almost didn't want to let it out of my sight. I immediately scanned it in as a PDF so that I could have an electronic copy just in case something happened to it because I, it was just a very precious document to me. It still is to this day. After that, we did call Todd and he was very pleased. I also let my other attorney that handled my case with my prior business partner, I let him know 
as well. I also would like to say this was Elizabeth's first ever trial. And so at this point in time, Elizabeth was unanimous and undefeated on August 24th of 2022. And Sarah said, let's go take a picture. It was, it was a big day for Elizabeth, her very first ever trial ever. And she did a great job and the verdict was ruling in our favor. And so that was a big moment for her. And I was very thankful for her. And she's a very, very, very good attorney. Even for being so young, she knew that case back to front. And I was very thankful for Sarah also. Sarah, who got my case five days before trial, they did a phenomenal job. And it was a huge undertaking because there was so much evidence in this case. I still can't believe right now, as I sit here today, how little the jury got to see. That's part of why doing this podcast was so important to me, because in order to understand the magnitude of what really happened, you have to see more than what we showed the jury. But even with that little evidence, the jury ruled in my favor to the tune of $246,500. At this point in time, the verdict is in. However, the verdict has to be converted into a judgment. And so that is another administrative legal process that will happen it actually took about two months for that to happen. And during this time, Todd said to me, say nothing. Do not say one single word because until that final judgment is in, anything can influence what has gone on. So you are to say nothing. So even though I had the verdict in my hands, a unanimous jury verdict in my favor, I still couldn't speak quite yet. However, the moment I had that unanimous jury verdict in my hands, the defendant's words and everything that she said no longer held any power. Next time on False and Defamatory. I believe we counted 10 times that she said she had no username on Gomi. She had never commented on Gomi and Reddit. That doesn't count the deposition. I don't understand to this day the defendant believes that Crystal lied on the stand. I believe she believes that because she, every breath she takes is a lie. So she thinks everyone is like that. On the second day, my son-in-law testified. I've known through the years that when he speaks, you listen because it's something important. It's something useful, very wise, and he's very grounded. He's very grounded. And her lawyer did with his best with what he had to work with. You've seen that she wouldn't respond. She wouldn't meet with them even, you know, during breaks at lunch. So I think he did the best he could do with what he had to work with. What he was arguing was, oh, well, this is just something that shouldn't even be at trial. Your health conditions are pre-existing. And honestly, strategically, that was the best that was argument the best. that he could have had. That was the only argument he could have. Had. It would have been insulting to the jury for him to to get up there and say with his client being inconsistent with her testimony and and try to convince the jury that she was credible. That would have been. Yeah. He could, he, there's no way he could say, "Well, she didn't say that," because there it was, either in black and white or on the screen. Finding evidence of every single thing that I would say was one of the things that I had done every day in my career and I knew that I hadn't done this and so I just was like can we just I'm not these people I'm really not they're whole entire humans they're not me let's just get them and 
Todd and Elizabeth would just say, well, mm-hmm. she has the burden of proof since she claimed truth. And I'm like, okay, legal, That's blah, blah, blah. stuff. Yeah. I want to say, no, I am not them. They are not me. Obviously, I knew CC one was not my daughter, and she knew the defendant was lying, as did everyone else that commented on Reddit. So, you know, I was kind of behind the scenes investigators. And I did not know these things. No, no, I wouldn't tell <laughs> tell me these things. And so some of the stuff, even that she says now, I'm like, I, didn't, I did not know these things. No, because I wasn't doing anything There wasn't anything for me to tell. I was just gathering information behind the scenes to find out if we we needed it. Would you have dropped the lawsuit had she shut up in the beginning? Yes. The lawsuit was only filed to make her stop. That was it. I, I absolutely would have, after the first retraction letter, if she would have gone and said, I got this wrong, I'm retracting all of this. But it came to a point where no, now, now I'm not stopping. But I was reading it and rereading it and I was like, oh my gosh, it sounds like just one juror could could mess up the whole thing. I knew that if they came to a unanimous decision, it could not be for the defendant. There was no way, there's no way. It was a long time coming, as she has said multiple times, just having the verdict, having that piece of paper, unanimous verdict that took the weight off again people would say oh just let it go let it go whatever no no she needed that The False and Defamatory podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Crystal Wrighton, with music by Harry B. Ragsdale, who also serves as my audio engineer. First and foremost, I would like to thank my guests who generously shared their time and insight with us. I would also like to thank my husband, my mom, my children, my therapist, my attorneys, and trusted friends who walked with me through this process and made this podcast possible. Being able to finally speak the truth is incredibly healing, and I appreciate you listening more than I could ask accurately express. If you would like to continue receiving my latest episodes and stay up to date with my content, please subscribe to the False and Defamatory podcast on your preferred podcast platform and follow False and Defamatory on social media with the handle at False and Defamatory. Links to False and Defamatory social media as well as my blog can be found in the episode notes and on falseanddefamatory.com. Listening to the False and Defamatory podcast is free on most platforms. However, if you prefer a video podcast or would like to see the documents discussed in the podcast shown on screen, you can subscribe to my Patreon, where you will enjoy these benefits as well as early access, bonus content, and ad-free listening. The defendant spread her false and defamatory claims to hundreds of thousands of followers for more than two years. My goal is to share the truth so it can reach each person who heard her lies. By sharing this podcast, you can help me achieve that goal. Your support means everything to me and helps me reach a wider audience. So please hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with those you think would benefit from it. Thank you again for sharing and for listening. All social media posts referenced in this podcast were included in the evidence in case number 096-321-678-20 in the 96th District Court of Tarrant County, Texas, where the jury unanimously ruled in my favor on August 24, 2022.
to. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the False and Defamatory podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the guests are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the view of the False and Defamatory podcast or Crystal Wrighton. Please do not make any attempts to reach out to the defendant or her followers. Names have been redacted to protect the privacy of the defendant and her army of followers who commented on her public posts. The unanimous jury verdict has not only provided me with justice, but also allows me to share my story. The purpose of this podcast is to share the truth and to provide educational content regarding defamation and social media. If you have any questions about this or to view the documents discussed in this episode, please visit falseanddefamatory.com.